I'm Kristen Meyershand, and this is the Apiango Line, a podcast dedicated to the unique heritage and distinctive culture of the Upper Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys here in Eastern Ontario, Canada. We're joined today by Leslie Batts, Jeff Bowman, and Lynn Stewart, all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre. And they have a show intended to take us back to the heart and soul of that unique local culture we often talk about, but few people can quite put a finger on. Most of us know much of it started back in the early 19th century when thousands of years of Indigenous culture gave way to those brash bushwhackers and, and jam crackers who invaded the local forests and began harvesting wood that still goes into building our homes. But if truth be told, most of us don't really know much about those timber cruisers and lumberjacks, and what we do know too often comes from old TV shows like Monty Python with their famous song, I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. Or perhaps you stumbled across one too many of those tall tales that told about Big Joe Muffra or Paul Bunyan. Often though, truth is stranger than fiction. And so we thought today, frozen stiff in the heart of another winter cold spell, what better way to while away an hour or so than by bringing you three voices from our wilderness, as it were, and not just any voices, but voices who knew the Madawaska Highlands back in the 19th century like the back of their hand, and who wrote about its shanty and river life as nobody else could. Now, names such as Joshua Fraser, George Thompson and Gilbert Parker might not ring a bell with many people nowadays, but we're pretty certain that after you've heard these fellows tell you a thing or two about shanty and river life back in the 19th century, you're not likely to ever forget them. For they are three authors who themselves have very unlikely stories, stranger, in fact, than fiction. Take Joshua Fraser. Born in Upper State, New York, the son of a Scottish preacher, he grew up in Lanark, Ontario, where one of his close friends was that great Canadian poet, Charles Mayer. He and Fraser attended Queen's University together before Mayer took off for the Riel Rebellion in the Northwest, and Fraser went off to teach school just down the Bonachere in Renfrew. He then returned to Queen's to study theology, and like his father, Joshua Fraser, took up the family business and became a Presbyterian minister. He first tended to his flock in Montreal and later in Whitby. But it was there that he worked himself literally into a state of exhaustion and so in 1879 he asked for and received a three-month medical leave to return to his father's native land in an attempt to regain his health in the Scottish Highlands. Yet Joshua never quite made it across the pond. But let's hear him tell what happened next. Here's Leslie Betts, reading from Joshua Fraser's Three Months Among the Moose. I was just on the point of taking out my ticket when who should come to visit me but my old and trusty friend Caldwell. Through thick and thin we had stuck together since childhood and had had many a joyous campaign together, hunting and fishing in the backwoods. In his characteristic way, he pooh-poohed the idea of my going to Scotland, the old country. Come with me, said he, and I'll soon set you on your feet again. My friend, a distinguished graduate of Queen's University and a member of Parliament to boot, was an extensive lumber merchant and was arranging to start in a few days on his annual winter trip to one of his far-off shanties on the Upper Ottawa. His presence and the memory of old associations acted like a charm. The old spirit of the woods came upon me, 
and without much hesitation, I agreed to forego my sea voyage and accompany him. I knew that the country to which he was going abounded in moose, an animal I had never hunted, in fact, never even seen except at a menagerie. I had shot an abundance of our common red deer in every conceivable orthodox style, by stalking, still hunting, hounds and jacklight. But I was ambitious of higher game and had often longed for an opportunity to hunt the moose, the true monarch of our Canadian forests. Here, then, was a glorious chance of carrying out the idea I had so fondly indulged in for years. Nothing could have been more opportune, both as to time and inclination. Without further ado, then, we concluded our arrangements for what we expected to be the best trip we had ever had together. I obtained leave of absence for three months and a substitute to do my work. And two days after, we were en route by train for Sand Point, where my friend had ordered his team and sleigh to meet him. On arriving there the same evening, we found the team awaiting us, and, after a very merry night with Judge Malik and some other old friends who met us there, we started the next morning on our long four days' drive to the backwoods. A more merry party never left Sam Point. We were four in number, my friend Caldwell and myself, his servant, Adam, who was a crack whip, and an old supernumerary of the concern who rejoiced under the euphonious name of Date. Date was a character in his way. He was over 70 years of age, tall, rigid, and tough as a blasted oak. He had seen every phase of lumbering life, from prosperous independence to absolute penury. He was a privileged character and could come and go and do as he liked, and, though self-opinionated and obstinate to the last degree, was yet a great favourite with my friend, to whom, in fact, he was distantly related. Date was withal a profane old man and full of strange oaths, but yet highly respected by all who knew him for his sterling integrity and honest independency of character. It was a glorious winter morning, mild yet bracing, with the atmosphere full of quickening oxygen and life-giving ozone. We had all that was desirable in the way of equipage, a most comfortable sleigh with abundance of warm robes, and a pair of horses that, for speed and endurance, could hardly be surpassed. No wonder we were merry, and as we glided swiftly along, generally at the rate of ten miles an hour, we made the woods echo and ring again with our hilarious shouts and jests and laughter. Thus we drove on, passing Renfrew, Portage du Fort, and, crossing the Ottawa, continued along its north shore until the evening of the second day, when an incident occurred which, though it had its amusing side, to me at least, might have ended seriously enough. Coldwell is a most unmerciful man to his beast, and is notorious for his fast and furious driving. On, Adam, on, was his continued shout to the driver. We were now to experience the consequences of this ill-advised speed. We had driven this day about 70 miles, and shortly after sunset were close at hand to the tavern where we were to spend the night. It is a place called the Manitou on the Black River which here runs swift and deep at the base of a mighty hill, down the side of which our road ran. Just as we reached the brow of the hill and were about to descend, 
one of the horses, a beautiful mare, dropped as suddenly as if she'd been shot, and rolling over on her back, flung her feet wildly and convulsively in the air. Consternation seized us. We were all out of the sleigh in a second, and making for what we thought was a dead horse. We speedily unloosed the harness and managed to get the animal upon its feet, but the trembling limbs and heaving flanks told how far gone she was. At this juncture, I remembered a flask of strong malt whiskey which I had in my valise, and which I had brought along merely for emergent and medicinal purposes. Here was a grand opportunity of testing its virtue. In a trice, I had it out, and while old Date held open the horse's mouth and Adam and I supported it on either side, Caldwell poured the raw contents down her throat. The effect was almost immediate. The mare appeared to shake herself together and in a few minutes was able to walk slowly about. She was too weak, however, to trust again in the harness, and we accordingly sent Adam on with both horses to the tavern, which lay at the foot of the hill, about a half a mile distant. But the end was not yet. My friend, who is a strong and muscular man, and as full of self-confidence and iron determination as he is strong, proposed that we should take the sleigh down the hill to the tavern. It will save the trouble of coming back for it, said he. It was a proposal of absolute and unmitigated insanity. It might have been possibly practicable if there had been nothing but the weight of the sleigh to consider. But in addition, there were some 700 pounds weight of broad axes and other shanty gear lying at the bottom. And the descent was steep, though winding and slippery as glass. I remonstrated, but Caldwell was determined. Come on, date, he yelled like a maniac. You and I can do it alone, and Fraser can sit on the top if he likes. I couldn't stand this, of course. So we laid hands on the sleigh. I took a firm hold of the back part. Date buckled onto the side fender, and Caldwell took the post of danger at the end of the pole. For the first few yards, we got on well enough. But the sleigh, gradually acquiring more and more impetus, finally became thoroughly unmanageable. In vain, I dug my heels into the icy incline and drew back with all my might. The sleigh got going at racing speed, and a hundred men couldn't have held it then. At the risk of splintering my tibia, I was forced to let go my hold. And the last look of that sleigh as it disappeared in the gloom of the evening and the descent of the hill, I shall never forget as long as I live. Old Date, obstinate as his master, still hung on, but his feet had slipped and he was crumpled up like an immense eel under the fender. And I could hear, though faintly, through the thickening gloom, his muttered, half-smothered oaths and protestations. Caldwell, in his immense fur coat, disdaining to let go, was being bounded onwards as if propelled from a catapult. I shouted to him to let go and jump aside, for his position was really most dangerous. If he had slipped and fallen, and the sleigh struck him with its headlong descent, it would have killed him on the spot. The two, however, finally got clear, and then the three of us went slowly down the hill to pick up the fragments. We were an ill-assorted trio. Caldwell, with his nose in the air, stalked ahead in sullen, offended dignity. 
Date, bruised and sore, followed at his heels, muttering profanities, not loud, but very emphatic. And I brought up the rear, convulsed with irrepressible but silent laughter, for I knew that if the slightest sound of merriment escaped me, I would be immolated on the spot. As we expected at the first turning on the hillside, the sleigh had dashed straight on into the trees in front and was badly damaged. The stout oaken pole was splintered into ribbons. The jaunty forepart was knocked into kindling wood, and the whole institution was generally demoralized. Here appeared to be a pretty fix indeed. But when things get at the worst, they generally begin to mend. When we got down to the tavern, we met a number of men there on their way to and from the woods, who, with that kindly readiness which is so characteristic of the Canadian shantyman, at once went for the sleigh and brought it down the hill in orthodox style, viz. with brakes on the runners and the back part facing downwards. Not only so, but with that wonderful dexterity with the axe which its long use has taught them, they improvised a capital pole and repaired the sleigh so that, for travelling purposes, it was as good as ever. The mare also, after careful doctoring and attention, was ready for the road in the morning. Caldwell, who was quite accustomed to such smash-ups, had regained his usual serene and genial equanimity of mind, and we started off all as merry-hearted as mortal men could be. At the Manitou, we left behind us the last vestige of civilization and fairly entered into the great piney wilderness of the backwoods. And what a land it is! The land of high mountains and deep valleys, of interminable forests and broad lakes. The mighty pines and hemlocks often interlaced their branches over our heads as we followed the winding road. The great stillness, the weird silence, the somber grandeur were almost oppressive when suddenly we would burst out into the glad sunshine and the broad glittering expanse of a beautiful lake. This quick change of scene is most delightful. I know of nothing which more pleasingly affects the mind than the sudden transition from the dark, silent, somber shades of the forest into the dear, open, bright expanse of these ice-bound waters. A thousand snowy diamonds glitter in the sunshine. The dazzling whiteness of the snow contrasts splendidly with the dark green foliage which fringes the shores. Many of these lakes are dotted with islands, upon which may stand out boldly and defiantly a single tree. The number of lakes in that country is almost incredible. This day we crossed 27. Some of those, no doubt, were mere ponds, but others were of great size. One in particular. Lake St. Patrick was five miles wide where we crossed it. I shall never forget the sensation of delight I experienced as we dashed out of the deep gloom of the forest into the sunny glory of this grand lake. Its shores were indented with long, narrow bays which afforded the most beautiful vistas, where the balsams with curtains of shaggy green, like tents in the distance, were dimly seen. The greenery of the foliage which gradually closed in these far-stretching views and which clothed the shores on every side was exquisitely beautiful. 
every hue and shade of green, from the bright-tinted cedar to the almost inky blackness of the balsam, was strikingly thrown out by contrast with the virgin whiteness of the snowy carpet which lay at their feet. Light, fleecy clouds floated over the crests of the giant pines. High hills, or more properly mountains, clothed to the summit with verdure, encircled the lake. Sometimes these were broken into bold, precipitous crags of dark granite, which towered several hundred feet above the icy level. Though the great body of Lake St. Patrick presents an unbroken view to the eye, still many of its large bays are full of small islands, often of most fantastic shape, which add greatly to the beauty of the scenery. Down over all, suffusing forest, lake, island, and hill, came pouring the glorious sunshine with a brilliancy and sparkling fullness that lit up everything with a dazzling radiance. This was truly a red-letter day in my experience of backwoods winter traveling. Even old Date seemed impressed. His solemn wrinkled visage relaxed, and he was always pointing to this or that particular object of beauty or interest. That night, we were very comfortably housed at a stopping place kept by a Frenchman called Joe. Though Joe was absent, his wife was all kindness and attention and prepared for us a famous supper of fresh whitefish, eggs, and pork chops, to which we did the justice its excellence demanded. Early in the afternoon of the next day, we arrived at Caldwell's Lumbering Depot, commonly called the Black River Farm. Here we were met with a right royal welcome from Caldwell's younger brother, who is commonly called Jim by his familiars, and his uncle, who is the general manager of his business. Uncle Willie, a man of iron frame and constitution, was thoroughly acquainted with all the intricacies of lumbering life, and from his great experience, as well as sound judgment, was Caldwell's right-hand man in the business. Though only 46 years of age, his hair was almost as white as snow, and behind his back, for he was a cross fellow in his way, the men called him Old Caribou. He had spent about five years in that country gold mining. Notwithstanding the pleasure and exciting variety of our five days' journey and my greatly improved health, still I felt very much exhausted. A reactionary feeling of nervous prostration set in, which made me feel that I must rest and recuperate. And if there ever was a place in which one could do both, it was that Black River farm. This farm, inaccessible in summer except to foot travelers, was extensively cultivated and well stocked. There was abundance of provisions of the freshest and healthiest quality. Milk, eggs, butter, vegetables of every kind, fresh beef, pork, and last and best of all, moose meat. What more could the heart of a man desire? What better building up material for a weak, nerve-shaken frame? Under this regimen, combined with a fair amount of snowshoe tramping in the surrounding woods, in which Jim and I had some capital grouse shooting, I improved rapidly, and at the end of a fortnight felt equal to a campaign against the moose. In the meantime, my friend Caldwell found that his business necessitated a more speedy return to the settlements than he had anticipated. So, after a run round to his different shanties and inspection of the work done, which occupied about a week, 
he started on his return home and left me to the tender mercies and hospitalities of his brother and uncle. When Joshua Fraser returned to his pulpit in Whitby, he told his parishioners about his three months up in the Pontiac. The church fathers were not amused, and they promptly fired him. Indeed, Reverend Fraser wrote his first book, Three Months Among the Moose, to help support himself while he appealed his unusual dismissal. He won each and every appeal he made, all the way up to the highest church court in the land, but, sad to say, in 1885, he died in a hotel fire at Charvet Lake, never to regain his position nor his reputation. Some modern historians consider him a drunken lout, though his books are still in print, and indeed his second one, Shanty, Forest, and River Life, is even better than the first. Ironically, the church in Whitby that fired him still refuses to acknowledge that he was once their minister, his photographic portrait being the only one missing among its gallery of 19th century pastors. But if you think that's strange, wait till you hear about our next writer. His name was George Thompson, and that's not really a pen name, as he freely admitted in the opening of his book, Up to Date or the Life of a Lumberman. He was born in England in the middle of the 19th century, but on coming to Canada, he encountered a young couple who had met and fallen in love aboard the ship. They were all traveling onto the New World. But the young lady was going to Chicago to rejoin her relatives, and the young fellow was supposed to be going on to Halliburton to join his aunt and uncle, who hadn't seen him since he was a baby. Of course, our man George, ever a Cupid, decided to give that young couple a very unusual present. As he had no real plan for employment in coming out to Canada, he convinced that young couple that they should both head off to Chicago while he'd impersonate that nephew, George Thompson. Voila! No sooner said than done. So whoever the author of Up to Date or The Life of a Lumberman really was, he instantly became George Thompson. In fact, he fooled his supposed Halliburton aunt and uncle so well that they both went to their graves none the wiser. George, if we can call him that, went on to have quite the life, as you might well imagine. Initially working on his uncle's farm, he soon headed off into the Halliburton and then the Madawaska Highlands, where he had a very successful career in the forest industry. So much so that in the 1890s, when he was close to retirement, he wrote one of the seminal works of 19th century shanty and river life. Here's a selection from Up to Date, or The Life of a Lumberman, read by Jeff Bowman. To go back to my first winter in a lumber shanty, I may say I got to like the life very much. The time went by very swiftly, and Christmas seemed to come quickly. And on Christmas Day, I was sorry we had not some of Mrs. Steve's Christmas pudding, for we had no pudding of any description. But we made out a fairly good feast on the front quarter of an old ox that had fallen over a rock and broken one of his legs, and in consequence had to be slaughtered. The beef was rather tough, but we bore no ill will to the old ox on that account. The two front quarters of that ox was all the beef we got that winter. The two hind quarters the bush superintendent had sent to the head shanty, or depot shanty. And I well remember the first Christmas evening I spent in a lumber shanty. Our foreman sat up with the crew and told us fairy and ghost stories. Now the crew were very superstitious, and for that matter I am myself. And that Christmas evening, 
There was a fearful gale blowing, and towards midnight, when our foreman was in the middle of one of his blood-curdling and hair-lifting stories, the crew all gathered around him with their eyes fairly bulging out. Then crash! Bang! Down came right amongst us a big pine limb which the wind had broken from a huge pine tree that stood some distance from our shanty. But the wind had carried the limb and dropped it down our camboose chimney. It made a fearful crash when it struck our pots and kettles. A more frightened crew I never saw, and I guess we all thought the devil had us. After we recovered a little from our fright, the foreman said it was sent as a warning to someone who was neglecting his religious duties, and he looked straight at me when he said it. I retorted by saying that I thought it had been sent to stop him telling such infernal lies, and after a hearty laugh, we all retired to our beds for the night. I had a pet beaver that winter. He was very industrious, as all beavers are, and could do almost anything but talk. We could tell when we were going to have a soft spell, for my beaver at nights would build a dam across one end of the shanty, using in construction the men's boots, shoe packs, or anything else lying around loose in the shanty. There were always embers enough in the fireplace to give sufficient light to watch his movements. I think a beaver is the most interesting pet anyone could possibly have. I have often watched them build their dams and have received many good prompts as to selecting a site on which to build a catchwater or reservoir dam, as well as the kind of a foundation required. Almost any man who can handle an axe can build a dam, but it requires experience and good judgment in selecting a site for the dam and also to know that the foundation is good before building the superstructure. No one ever heard of or saw a beaver dam taken out or washed away by floods. That's because a beaver builds his dam on a sure foundation, and he builds it to stay, and he never makes any mistake about it. It is surprising how quickly a few beavers will build a large dam or repair one that has been partly cut away or destroyed. The lumbermen often have to cut away a beaver dam in order to secure water for a larger reservoir, Yet those beavers will either build another or repair that dam and always have the work supervised by a foreman beaver who handles his laborers in much the same way that a foreman of a shanty does his men. How the beaver gets his mace to understand I never could make out. When at work, the beaver is difficult to approach, though I have sometimes been close enough to get a good idea of their methods, which is systematic and evidently all figured out ahead of time. The only visitors we had that winter was a couple of French priests. They are the only ministers who make it their duty to go regularly every winter to the lumber shanties. Often the journeys are attended by many dangers, privations, and difficulties, but nothing ever stops the good fathers. Snow, cold, or rain, they go all the same and are always joyfully and heartily received by both Catholics and Protestants alike. I know of no more solemn sight than a crew of lumbermen at prayers. The surroundings are usually awe-inspiring and sublime in their loneliness. The sight, I'm sorry to say, is rarely, if ever seen, in any other shanty than one manned by the French. And I was sorry when our shanty closed in the spring. Any of our crew who were not engaged for the runoff were paid off. Quite a number of the men got up to the bush about the 1st of September when timber-making, log-cutting, skidding, road-making, and also stream improvements such as dams, piers, etc. can all be done cheapest and to best advantage. 
This work takes up all the time until sufficient depth of snow comes, about 10 inches, to commence to haul the timber and saw logs to the streams. Very little timber is made or logs cut after Christmas, the snow usually being too deep for the men to do such work to advantage. Anyhow, the hauling of the timber and logs generally takes up all the time of the foreman and the crew until about the middle of the month of March. Then preparations have to be made for the drives. For the streams clear themselves of ice, mostly in the month of April, and then the real hard work of the raftsman or river driver commences, for the timber and logs must be got down the same stream by the spring freshets, or if the flood of water is allowed to run off and get ahead of the drive, then the timber and logs will have to remain in the stream until the next spring. This is what lumbermen call sticking or hanging up a drive. And it's a great loss to the owner as well as being thought of as as a disgrace to the foreman and crew who worked on it. A foreman who sticks more than one drive soon loses his reputation and gets reduced to the ranks. Occasionally, there will be an unusually dry spring and the spring freshets are therefore light. Then, of course, no blame is attached to anyone if the drive should happen to be hung up. It's difficult to foresee just how a stream that has never been navigated will act the first season it's driven, as well as to decide what improvements are necessary. This is where experience and good judgment counts. The destination for all square timber is Quebec, and for saw logs, the Ottawa River, usually to the owner's sawmill at Ottawa or other points on that river. The river driving and rafting takes up all the spring and summer months, and when a man engages for the run, he is obliged to stay until the timber reaches its destination. In the early days, and even yet, on the Ottawa River, the men had to sign an agreement similar to the one that sailors sign when joining a ship. Only the only one the shantyman signs is more like a chattel mortgage on his life for one year. Fortunately, the good laws in force in Ontario overrides objectionable clauses in the agreement, so the shantyman is protected against any lumberman who would take advantage of him. But as a rule, Canadian lumbermen use their men well in every respect, and the old-time lumbermen especially so. Those among our crew who were engaged for the run when our shanty broke up that spring were sent to the depot or headquarter shanty, where they could be best employed until navigation opened. The depot shanty is where all the provisions and all the supplies are forwarded to, and from there are distributed as are required to the other shanties on the timber limit. It's where the bush superintendent, chief clerk, bush rangers, and log scalers make their headquarters, and where all men leaving are settled with and paid off. The books and accounts of the whole operation are kept there, and the clerks in the working shanties make a weekly return to the chief clerk of all work done in their shanties. The company's or concern's head office is probably hundreds of miles distant from the depot shanty, and as some of the big lumber concerns have as many as 2,000 men in the bush, scattered perhaps over hundreds of miles of territory, the only feasible way is to have a bush superintendent for about every 500 men, and above those bush superintendents, a traveling agent to overlook the whole outfit. The operations must necessarily be scattered along the banks of several streams, as the smaller tributaries to the main rivers would not be able to carry out the enormous output of timber and saw logs in one season that some of the large operators take out. So, a bush superintendent usually has some 10 or 15 shanties on a single stream all by himself, 
which he oversees from the depot shanty. The bush superintendent is practically the only official the men in the woods have any dealings with. His word is law on everything. He makes all the rules and regulations, and all have to obey his orders, and no appeal can be made against his ruling. He engages all his subordinates, including the chief clerk and foreman, and arranges the scale of wages. He can dismiss all or any one of the lot, at pleasure, and the Tsar of Russia is not a greater autocrat. But the site for a depot shanty is selected with great care, as to its natural advantages as a base of supplies, and its easy access by river, lake, or road, because the buildings are greater in number and more substantially constructed than the ordinary shanty. Large clearings are usually made in order to pasture the horses and cattle during the summer season. Villages and even towns often sprung up around these lumber depots. After our shanty broke up, my books were inspected by the chief clerk, and everything checked off and the cost of our shanty ascertained. Against this was credited our output of timber and saw logs, by which the bush superintendent could tell if our winter's work was satisfactory or not. If the cost was found to be too much or above the usual average cost, the chances were that the foreman would be discharged. The superintendent was well pleased with my work and the way I had performed my duties, and so I was re-engaged to stay on one of the drives in the same capacity. We had about a month's time in which to make preparations for the drives, such as building boats and scows, capstan and cribs or floats on which to carry our provisions across the lakes and down the rivers, and to put the tents on for the men to sleep in, and also to make pike poles and peavies, as well as other tools used by the men in rafting and river driving. Raftsmen take great pride in performing feats of strength and agility, and in the early days of lumbering, when Mr. White was a young man, there were more occasions of displaying it than now. A strong man in those days was a valuable man to have, and on the Ottawa River at that time, there was no railroad or any other kind of road to enable the lumbermen to get up to the Ottawa district. Everything had to go up the river in boats or on the ice after the river had frozen up in sleighs. Of course, a trail would be cut where there would be rapids, and that was called a portage. Some of these portages were several miles in length, so that when a shanty crew started from Ottawa or Pembroke in the autumn, they would have to take sufficient provisions and supplies to last them at least three or four months. The provisions and supplies have to be carried over the portages, be it long or short. In addition to this, the boats, which they call pointers, would have to be dragged over the portage if the rapid was too swift to allow its being pulled up by rope and each boat would carry two tons of freight besides the crew, and the trip up to where the shanty was to be built. It would often take nearly a month's time. Now the cook on those trips had a hard time of it, for he had to do the cooking and get the meals ready the best he could. And we had many difficulties to contend with. Seldom did they ever have any tents with them. If the night was wet and stormy, they turned their boats upside down on shore and crawled under them, and that was all the shelter they got. Though perhaps late in the month of November, and snow on the ground, the men were always light-hearted and cheerful, and worked with a will and would outvie each other as to who could carry the largest load across the portage. And when evening came, and these hardy voyageurs would be sitting around the campfire, the big loads carried would usually be the topic of conversation. 
Mr. White in his day, and I guess even at the present time, is champion in this particular line, and few, if any, dispute his title. If they do, he's ever ready to back up his claim to the title. In those early days, it was considered good work for a crew to reach the upper Ottawa district from Pembroke with their boats and supplies and get settled to work in a month's time. The men who followed shantying and river driving are among the hardiest in the world. Of a strong constitution, they are required to be supple and active, good swimmers, and quicken their movements. I know of no business or calling in which the hardships are so great as that of a river driver. The cowboy's life is a picnic compared to that of a river driver, and less dangerous. A river driver must be a brave man, possessed of nerve, with a cool, level head, and act quickly, for he's often in a critical and dangerous place, when hesitation or delay would imperil his own life and probably the lives of his comrades. Time and again have I seen a river driver, without a moment's hesitation, rush to the rescue of a comrade in danger. And more than one of these brave fellows have I seen lose their lives in that very way. There are today many of these noble men who should be wearing the Royal Humane Society's medal. These acts of bravery usually occur on some stream where no one but their own crew are witnesses. And indeed, such acts of bravery are so common that they themselves hardly think them worthy of mention. There's scarcely an old lumberman who has not been saved from drowning by his comrades at least half a dozen times in his life. I've heard people wonder why I always take so much interest in these men, some of whom are characterized as drunken shantymen. Of course, many of the people who so meanly refer to these brave fellows only see the poor shantymen perhaps once a year, at a time when he has money in his pocket and he's enjoying himself with his companions after his winter's work or after the drive has been hung up or reached its destination. These people who thus malign a noble lot of men do not see them or have no means of knowing their true natures. A few drinks of the vile liquors usually sold to shantymen would turn an angel into a demon. Sometimes I've found a shantyman being made the butt of a number of barroom loafers or suckers, who were, I often knew, not fit to tie the shantyman's shoestrings. Many a row I got myself into in helping a poor fellow who was being imposed upon. In such cases, the odds were severely against me. I seldom took this into consideration, however. Of course, I often got thrashed or licked, as the boys call it, but usually I would even up some time or another, and it soon got to be known in the Peterborough district that it was no picnic to lick me. If they did succeed licking me unfairly, they were only borrowing trouble. Of course, if I was worsted in a fair fight that settled it, for at one point in my life no one was fonder than I of either giving or receiving a few knocks, and even today I'm no dude if a scrap is going on in sight. Take river drivers and shantymen when at their work and away from whiskey, a nobler or kindlier lot of men cannot be found. They're honest and would not harm or see anyone harmed if in their power to prevent it. They're gallant and always courteous. Not for the world would one of them say or do anything offensive in the presence of a lady. In fact, a more gallant lot of men do not exist. It was from among the river drivers that General Wolsey selected his men to pilot his soldiers to the northwest at the time of the Riel Rebellion. 
And it was also from among the same men that the same general got the boatman to navigate his soldiers up the Nile River to rescue that good and brave man, General Gordon. Towards the last of the month of April, of that first season of mine in the bush, the men were divided into four crews of about fifty each, and a foreman and assistant foreman were placed in charge of each crew, and the bush superintendent controlled the lot. We were all put out under canvas, the canvas being old, discarded military tents, and the snow was still on the ground, in some places nearly three feet deep. Each man was allowed one regulation blanket, but the men used to make a good bed out of balsam boughs taken from the trees, which are plentiful in all parts of Canada. And when the boughs are broken up fine and nicely laid on the ground about six inches deep, they make one of the finest mattresses possible. In fact, it's all the mattress a shantyman would get either in the shanty or on the river. And even today, the old shantymen will use nothing else in their beds at home. Now, the natives always used balsam brush under their blankets, and one good feature about it is no one will ever catch cold who uses them for a bed. The perfume of the balsam bough is strong, but not at all objectionable. And when camping out in the bush, there's great danger when a heavy gale is blowing. Large limbs will often be carried quite a distance and may drop through one's tent, so great caution should be used in picking out a camping ground. The damage from lightning is also great. If camped among pine trees, the tall tops of the pine appear to attract electricity, for I have seen hundreds of pine trees that had been struck by lightning. Usually a straight mark down one side of the tree is left, probably about six inches wide and two inches deep. The piece is taken out slick and clean. Sometimes the tree is killed right out, but many of them live on with one side partly decayed. No doubt many forest fires originate through lightning, though I've never seen one start that way. Neither did I hear of anyone who did. But a match in the hands of some careless or willful person I find is the cause of most forest fires. Another cause is carelessness in handling campfires, not only by lumbermen, but hunters and others. A native is never struck by lightning, and such a case was never known. I often wondered how they escaped and have spoken to them about it and endeavored to discover the secret of how they dodged the electric fluid, but could not get them to tell me. There may be no secret at all, just instinct which keeps them exposing themselves during thunderstorms. All the same, a fortune awaits the party who can discover that secret. The first work to be done on a river is to break all the dumps and get the logs and timber afloat. Breaking the dumps is a very dangerous piece of business, and often thousands of pieces of saw logs will be in one intricate mass, piled up mountains high on the bank of some stream or lake where the mountain is too steep to get down with the sleighs. The men commence to work at their dumps as soon as the stream is clear of ice, and of course the logs at the base of the dump have to be rolled in first to allow the other ones to follow. Often, after a few logs have been rolled into the stream, the whole lot may be set in motion, and they'll come down with a great crash. The men then have to be very nimble and skin out of the way as best they can, often taking a dive in the water to escape. Now, the water in the spring is mixed up with masses of ice, and a dip into it at such a time is anything but pleasant. But it's preferable to having a few dozen saw logs roll over your body. Often the breaking of the dumps and getting the logs afloat takes up several weeks, 
and it's a vexatious delay, but one which cannot be avoided. Our drive that first spring was much delayed in that way. The trouble is that all the time that kind of work lasts, the spring is running away. To hold as much of the freshet back as possible until the water can be used to best advantage, dams are built. Wherever possible, a reservoir is made of a lake or even a beaver meadow. And when the stop logs are taken out of the dam, the rush of water, if the dam is full, is great, and the flood sends the logs tumbling over the rapids, and the noise they make as they are driven and pounded against the rocks in the rapids and tumbling over the falls often reminded me of the thunder of cannon when heard in the distance. Occasionally, a stick of timber or logs running too thick together will cause a jam in the rapids often in dangerous and difficult places, perhaps where the banks of the stream and the side of which are solid rock mountains high and as straight up as the side of a house. Then the best men, jam crackers or white watermen as the boys call them, go on to break this jam or pick out the key log or stick that's holding all the rest. Often the key stick or log will have to be cut with an axe, and probably when half cut through the pressure of the massive logs behind it, the stick will crack, and in a second the whole is a seething, twisting, curling mass of logs, upending and turning in every shape and going at a terrific speed. It is in such places where a river driver's nerve and agility finds play as well as his cool and level head. He is often to spring as quickly as a squirrel in picking his way over the swiftly moving mass, often jumping 10 or 15 feet from one moving stick or log to another before he gets a chance to make his way ashore. That is, if he's fortunate enough to get ashore. Often they get caught or struck by a log and are badly injured, or get thrown in the madly foaming rapids when a desperate battle for life commences. His comrades witnessing the terrible struggle and often utterly impossible to help him. The sight is a thrilling one and frequently ends in fatality. Once I witnessed such a sight, my crew of nearly 100 men lined the banks and rushed out on the logs on the side jams as they saw a poor fellow trying to swim as he was being tossed and thrown about like a cork. In this case, the river was wide and the mad current kept him in the middle of the stream out of reach of us all. On he went until he came to the brink of a straight falls of nearly 30 feet. Swiftly he approached and over he went and was lost to view for a few seconds. When he bobbed up again, we could see he'd been badly hurt and was much exhausted. But bravely again, he tried to steady himself to go over the next cataract a couple of yards below. As he went over that last 10-foot falls, we saw him throw up his arms and that was the last we saw him alive. I instantly had the dam closed at the head of the rapids and the water lowered, and then we commenced our dismal search. We found his mangled body three-quarters of a mile below where he had been thrown in by being struck by a piece of timber in a moving jam. He had been working on it just above the first falls. The poor fellow was only about 24 years of age, and he was always venturesome, and such scenes are of frequent occurrence. Sometimes a rope is fastened around a man's body and held by others on shore when he's working on the key stick, chopping it in two. Then, if the jam breaks, suddenly his comrades pull him ashore with ropes. It's only in extremely risky cases that a rope is used, because it's seldom less than half a dozen men can do anything towards breaking a jam, and sometimes it takes all the crew several days, if a bad one. 
The unwritten law among river drivers is that when a bad jam forms in a dangerous place, the foreman is first to inspect it. Then, when he has decided where to commence the attack, he signals what men he wishes to go and assist him. The men all gather on the bank, but none offer to go on the jam until the foreman calls. For too many men on a jam is always a source of danger, the jam being able to go without an instant's warning. Any unnecessary men would only impede others in their run to shore. The foreman is also best judge of who is the most capable man in such a case. But a foreman, to have or retain the respect of the crew, must always be first to the front in dangerous places. And it's rarely any man who refuses to follow his lead. And when out on the jam, the first thing they do is to take a glance to spot the safest way for making their run ashore in case of the jam taking a sudden start. For in that case, it's every man for himself. We had two stretches of about three miles each, a very bad river that spring. There was not sufficient improvements down the stream to allow a quick run of the enormous quantity of timber and logs that we had in our drive. So the spring flood got away from us, and we had to leave behind fully one half of our drive, which was a very serious loss to the firm. For logs especially are apt to get badly damaged by worms and decaying sapwood when hung up dry on the streams. If left afloat in deep water, no danger that way is sustained, but logs or timber hung up means a year longer before realizing income on them and piles up the interest account fast. The crew I was with were paid off, myself with the rest, and I was glad of it for the mosquitoes and black flies were very bad. No rest night or day could be got, for at night the mosquitoes get in their work, and so does, so does another insect which goes by the name of Shantyman's Pet. A shantyman's shirt and blankets are their favorite breeding place, and anywhere over a shantyman's person is their hunting ground. They're built somewhat on the principle of a potato bug, and an old male one is almost as large. There's a Latin name for them, but I'm no Latin scholar, so I can't give it. I'm in the same fix in that respect as the Frenchman was, who inquired in his broken English, What do you call that thing that have no father and no mother? A story goes that a lumberman who lives not a thousand miles from Toronto and is fond of a practical joke once visited his lumber shanty accompanied by his dude bookkeeper from the city. The lumberman stuffed the bookkeeper with yarns about the insect called the shantyman's pet, and the bookkeeper, who had never heard of such an insect, thought he would like to bring back a few to the city with him as a curiosity to show his friends. The shanty foreman was requested to have some captured, and he got an old-timer to pick a few dozen large specimens off his shirt. A few were put in an envelope and given to the bookkeeper, and the other few dozen was dropped by the foreman down the back of the neck of both the lumberman and his bookkeeper. Both were married men, but on their arrival home, the shantyman's pet came near causing two separate actions for divorce. That was only the beginning of what would turn out to be a very wild life for our man, George Thompson. Sad to say, his book is very difficult to find these days. But if you want to download a free copy, we'd suggest you try Internet Archive. Of course, we'd be remiss if we let you think that nonfiction writers such as Joshua Fraser and George Thompson were the only ones who wrote eloquently about our local shanty and river life back in the 19th century. Our third author is probably someone that you have also never heard of, but, truth be told, he's still in print, and he's quite the fellow. His name is Gilbert Parker, 
and he was born in Camden East, just northeast of Napanee. At some point, he spent time on the Madawaska River, either working, or at the very least, listening to a lot of Madawaska shanty and rivermen. Yet, instead of choosing a life on the Madawaska River, Mr. Parker chose to become a teacher at first. He taught mainly in Hastings County and, for a while, he even became a professor at Trinity College in Toronto. But he was forever restless and so decided to head off to Australia, where he made a name for himself in journalism, working for the Sydney Morning Herald as a foreign correspondent and reporting from Europe, Asia, and the South Pacific. But for all of that, Gilbert couldn't quite shake those upper Ottawa Valley shanty and rivermen. So he began writing short stories, and then novels, and one in particular struck gold. It was called Pierre and His People. And of course, Pierre hailed from where else? The Pontiac, a place that, like Joshua Fraser, Gilbert Parker seemed to know as well as the Madawaska. Here is Lynn Stewart with one of those short stories about Pierre and his people, written by Gilbert Parker. It's called Bammer's Boom. His trouble came upon him when he was old. To the hour of its coming, he had been of shrewd and humorous disposition. He had married late in life, and his wife had died, leaving him one child, a girl. She grew to womanhood, bringing him daily joy. She was beloved in the settlement, and there was no one at Bammer's Boom, in the valley of the Madawaska, but was startled and sorry when it turned out that Dugard, the river boss, was married. He floated away down the river with his rafts and drives of logs, leaving the girl sick and shamed. They knew she was sick at heart because she grew pale and silent. They did not know for some months how shamed she was. Then it was that Mrs. Lauder, the sister of the Roman Catholic missionary, Father Halen, being a woman of notable character and kindness, visited her and begged her to tell all. Though the girl, Nora, was a Protestant, Mrs. Lauder did this, but it brought sore grief to her. At first, she could hardly bear to look at the girl's face. It was so hopeless, so numb to the world. It had the indifference of despair. Rumor now became hateful fact. When the old man was told, he gave one great cry, then sat down, his hands pressed hard between his knees, his body trembling, his eyes staring before him. It was Father Halen who told him. He did it as man to man and not as a priest, having traveled 50 miles for the purpose. George Magore, said he, it's bad, I know, but bear it with the help of God and be kind to the girl. The old man answered nothing. My friend, the priest continued, I hope you'll forgive me for telling you. I thought it would be better coming for me than to have it thrown at you in the settlement. We have been friends one way and another, and my heart aches for you, and my prayers go with you. The old man raised his sunken eyes, all their keen humor gone, and spoke as though each word were dug from his heart. Say no more, Father Halen. Then he reached out, caught the priest's hand in his gnarled fingers, and wrung it. The father never spoke a harsh word to the girl. Otherwise, he seemed to harden into stone. When the Protestant missionary came, he would not see him. The child was born before the river drivers came along the next year with their rafts and logs. There was feeling abroad that it would be ill for Dugard if he chanced to camp at Bammer's Boom. The look of the old man's face was ominous, 
and he was known to have an iron will. Dugard was a handsome man, half French, half Scotch, swarthy and admirably made. He was proud of his strength and showily fearless in danger. For there were dangerous hours to the river life. When, for instance, a mass of logs became jammed at a rapids and must be loosened, or a crib struck into the wrong channel, or failing to enter a slide straight, came at a nasty angle to it, its timbers wrenched and torn apart, and its crew, with their great oars, were plumped into the busy current. He had been known to stand singly in some perilous spot when one log, the key to the jam, must be shifted to set free the great tumbled pile. He did everything with a dash. The handspike was waved and thrust into the best leverage. The long, robust cry, ho hee hee hoy rolled over the waters. There was a devil's jumble of logs, and he played a desperate game with them, tossing here, leaping there, balancing elsewhere, till reaching the smooth rush of logs in the current, he ran across them to the shore as they spun beneath his feet. His gang of river drivers, with their big drives of logs, came sweeping down one beautiful day of early summer, red-shifted, shouting, good-tempered. It was about this time that Pierre came to know Magor. It was the old man's duty to keep the booms of several great lumbering companies and to watch the logs when the river drivers were engaged elsewhere. Occasionally, he took a place with the men helping to make cribs and rafts. Dugard worked for one lumber company, Magor for others. Many in the settlement showed Dugard how much he was despised. Some warned him that Magor had said he would break him into pieces. It seemed possible that Dugard might have a bad hour with the people of Bammer's Boom. Dugard, though he swelled and strutted, showed by a furtive eye and a sinister watchfulness that he felt himself in an atmosphere of danger. But he spoke of his wickedness lightly as, A slip, a little accident, mon ami. Pierre said to him one day, Bien, Dugard, you are a bold man to come here again. Or is it that you think old men are cowards? Dugard, blustering, laid his hand suddenly upon his case knife. Pierre laughed softly, contemptuously, came over and, throwing out his perfectly formed but not robust chest in the fashion of Dugard, added, Ho, ho, monsieur the butcher, take your time at that. There is too much blood in your carcass. You have quarrels plenty on your hands without this. Come, don't be a fool and a scoundrel, too. Dugard grinned uneasily and tried to turn the thing off as a joke, and Pierre, who laughed still a little more, said, It would be amusing to see old Magor and Dugard fight. It would be so equal. There was a keen edge to Pierre's tones, but Dugard dared not resent it. One day, Magor and Dugard must meet. The square timber of the two companies had got tangled at a certain point, and gangs from both must set them loose. They were camped some distance from each other. There was rivalry between them, and it was hinted that if any trouble came from the meeting of Magor and Dugard, the gangs would pay off all scores with each other. Pierre wished to prevent this. It seemed to him that the two men should stand alone in the affair. He said as much here and there to members of both camps, for he was free of both, a tribute to his genius at poker. The girl, Nora, was apprehensive for her father. She hated the other man now. Pierre was courteous to her, scrupulous in his word and look, and fond of her child. He had always shown a gentleness to children, which seemed little compatible with his character, 
but for this young outlaw in the world, he had something more. He even labored carefully to turn the girl's father in its favor, but as yet to little purpose. He was thoughtful of the girl, too. He only went to the house when he knew her father was present, or when she was away. Once, while he was there, Father Halen and his sister, Mrs. Lauder, came. They found Pierre with the child, rocking the cradle, and humming as he did so an old song of the Courier de Bois. Out of the hills comes a little white deer, poor little Vaurien, O.C.C. Come to my home, to my home down here, sister and brother and child and me, poor little, poor little Vaurien. Pierre was alone, save for the old woman who had cared for the home since Nora's trouble came. The priest was anxious, lest any harm should come from Dugard's presence at Bammer's Boom. He knew Pierre's doubtful reputation, but still he knew he could speak freely and would be answered honestly. What will happen? he abruptly asked. What neither you nor I should try to prevent, monsieur, was Pierre's reply. Magor will do the man injury? What would you have? Put the matter on your own hearthstone, eh? Pardon if I say these things bluntly. Pierre still lightly rocked the cradle with one foot. But vengeance is in God's hands. Monsieur, said the half-breed, vengeance is also man's. Else, why did we ten men from Fort Cyprus track down the Indians who murdered your brother, the good priest, and kill them one by one? Father Halen caught his sister as she swayed and helped her to a chair and then turned a sad face on Pierre. Were you, were you one of that ten, he asked, overcome, and he held out his hands. The two river-driving camps joined at Mudcat Point, where was the crush of great timber. The two men did not at first come face to face, but it was noticed by Pierre, who smoked on the bank while the others worked, that the old man watched his enemy closely. The work of undoing the great twist of logs was exciting, and the logs fell on each other with a great sound as they were pried off and went sliding, grinding into the water. At one spot they were piled together, massive and high. These were left to the last. It was here that the two met. Old Magor's face was quiet, if a little haggard, and his eyes looked out from under his shaggy brows piercingly. Dugard's manner was swaggering, and he swore horribly at his gang. Presently, he stood at a point alone, working at an obstinate log. He was at the foot of an incline of timber, and he was not aware that Magor had suddenly appeared at the top of that incline. He heard his name called out sharply. Swinging around, he saw Magor thrusting a handspike under a huge timber hanging at the top of the incline. He was standing in a hollow, a kind of trench. He was shaken with fear, for he saw the old man's design. He gave a cry and made as if to jump out of the way, but with a laugh, Magor threw his whole weight on the handspike. The great timber slid swiftly down and crushed Dugard from his thighs to his feet, breaking his legs terribly. The old man called down to him, A slip! A little accident, mon ami. Then shouldering his handspike, he made his way through the silent gangs to the shore, and so on homewards. Magor had done what he wished. Dugard would be a cripple for life, his beauty all spoiled and broken. There was much to do to save his life. Nora also about this time took to her bed with fever. Again and again Pierre rode thirty miles and back to get ice for her head. All were kind to her now. The vengeance upon Dugard seemed to have wiped out much of her shame in the eyes of Bammer's boom. 
Such is the way of the world. He that has the last blow is in the eye of advantage. When Nora began to recover, the child fell ill also. In the sickness of the child, the old man had a great temptation, far greater than that concerning Dugard. As the mother grew better, the child became much worse. One night the doctor came, driving over from other, another settlement, and said that if the child got sleep till morning, it would probably live, for the crisis had come. He left an opiate to procure the sleep, the same that had been given to the mother. If it did not sleep, it would die. Pierre was present at this time. All through the child's illness, the old man's mind had been tossed to and fro. If the child died, the living stigma would be gone. There would be no reminder of his daughter's shame in the eyes of the world. They could go away from Bammer's boom and begin life again somewhere. But then, there was the child itself which had crept into his heart. He knew not how, and it would not be driven out. He had never, till it was taken ill, even touched it, nor spoken to it. And to destroy its life! Well, would it not be better for the child to go out of all possible shame into peace, the peace of the grave? This night he sat down beside the cradle, holding the bottle of medicine and a spoon in his hand. The hot, painful face of the child fascinated him. He looked from it to the bottle and back, and then again to the bottle. He started, and the sweat stood out on his forehead. For though the doctor had told him in words the proper dose, he had by mistake written on the label the same dose as for the mother. Here was the responsibility shifted in any case. More than once the old man uncorked the bottle, and once he dropped out the opiate in the spoon steadily. But the child opened its suffering eyes at him, its little wasted hand wandered over the cutter, and he could not do it just then. But again, the passion for its destruction came on him because he heard his daughter moaning in the other room. He said to himself that she would be happier when it was gone. But as he stooped over the cradle, no longer hesitating, the door softly opened and Pierre entered. The old man shuddered and drew back from the cradle. Pierre saw the look of guilt in the old man's face and his instinct told him what was happening. He took the bottle from the trembling hand and looked at the label. What is the proper dose, he asked, seeing that a mistake had been made by the doctor. In a hoarse whisper, McGore told him. It would maybe too late, Pierre added. He knelt down with light fingers opened the child's mouth and poured the medicine in slowly. The old man stood for a time rigid, looking at them both. Then he came round to the other side of the cradle and seated himself beside it, his eyes fixed on the child's face. For a long time they sat there. At last the old man said, Will he die, Pierre? I am afraid so, answered Pierre painfully, but we shall see. Then early teaching came to him, never to be entirely obliterated, and he added, Has the child been baptized? The old man shook his head. Will you do it? asked Pierre hesitatingly. I can't, I can't, was the reply. Pierre smiled a little ironically as if at himself and got some water in a cup and came over and said, Remember, I'm a papist. A motion of the hand answered him. He dipped his fingers in the water and dropped it ever so lightly on the child's forehead. George Magor, it was the old man's name, 
I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Then he drew the sign of the cross on the infant's forehead. Sitting down, he watched beside the child. After a little, he heard a long, choking sigh. Looking up, he saw tears slowly dropping from Agor's eyes. And to this day, the child and the mother of the child are dear to the old man's heart. That, of course, is not the end of the story of Gilbert Parker. He went on to become so famous for his writing that he was knighted and became Sir Gilbert Parker. He was even elected to the British Parliament, and his political career during the Great War often reads like one of those novels he should have written. But whatever Gilbert Parker should have written, whoever George Thompson really was, and whatever human decency and legal justice forever evaded Joshua Fraser, all three of these writers have given the Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys much of their cultural color, if not the baseline for our local heritage. Few people who come here or hear about that wild and woolly world of 19th century lumberjacks could ever imagine such stories. Only now, you can at least send them off to the library and maybe get at the real story of our very unique 19th century shanty and river life. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Lynn Stewart, and our producer, Barry Conway, we hope after the snow stops flying, you can get down to our library or flip open that iPad and find out something more about our three featured authors from today. If not, find out something more about that old shanty and river life of the Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys. Good day, and God bless. <laughs>